You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Well, good morning, everybody. If you have, um, we're, we're continuing in a series today that I, I'm not sure when it ends, but it's soon. Um, but we're, we're thinking through, um, uh, I guess what the title is, Prophetic Portraits of God. So we're, we're finding a different entry point to think about the prophets. And, and frankly, this is very willy-nilly. You know, I'm, I'm just sort of picking and choosing as we go along. Um, two weeks ago, we looked at Isaiah the prophet and thought through some of the dynamics of the way in which Isaiah's portrait of God uh, shapes our understanding of the divine being. And, and today, I'd like to spend our time in the book of Hosea, um, the first three chapters, and kind of think through this out loud with you a little bit. Um, so if you have Bibles or phones that have a Bible, you might want to you might want to grab it. Um, not necessarily. I mean, we'll we'll we'll, we'll read out loud. Um, but we're gonna, we'll spend our time in Hosea today. And it's, it's a provocative book. You know, there's, there's a lot going on in the book of Hosea, uh, worth thinking about out loud. So let, let me pray, and, and then we'll dive in. And I like the, the, the kind of size of our class today. Um, I, I mean to mention this more than I do, but if at any point during a lesson you, you want to stop or you have a question or clarifying question, let's, we'll let this sort of dynamic be a little bit more alive. So feel free to interject whenever, Whenever you um, would like, let me pray. Father, we're grateful that you brought us together again on this Lord's Day, and we're thankful that you um, let us come together as your people in worship, and to have our our minds and our hearts re recalibrated and recalculated again toward who we are in you and how that shapes our whole, whole existence. And thank you, Jesus, for even what we heard this morning from Cameron, for the wonderfully good news that you have. Uh, died for us and you've also lived for us. And I pray that that will free us, Lord, to love you and to love our neighbors. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we're in the book of Hosea today. Um, and a few things just sort of are, are worth uh, pointing out on the, on the front end. Hosea is an interesting book in the way in which it's put together. Um, so when you think about the prophets and the way in which the prophets of the Old Testament are structured, and I will admit to you, um, that's why I'm surprised that you all are here this morning, right? Because the prophets are, I mean, they're a tough pill to swallow. And it's its easy enough to get into the prophets and get really lost when one's trying to navigate their way through the various images that are used, the historical references that are being made. Where is this text located in time? I mean, that that's a kind of question, by the way, that we as moderns in our moment in time uh, tend to think very acutely about. We need to know where a text is located so that we can try to make some sense of it. And that the, the ancient mind's not as 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 concerned about the, the the dynamics of historical particularity as we might be. But still, we'd like to know something about you know when these texts were written and where do they come from. And navigating through the prophets, I mean, it can, you can get seasick through these things. Um, I, I had someone stop me in a recent setting. It was it was at a Baptist church out out uh, down 280 somewhere, and it was a Wednesday night deal with one of my former students. And I had a, one of the parishioners came up to me afterward, and he said, I, I, "Jeremiah can't make sense of any of it." 
He's like, I'm, I'm reading in one chapter and Zedekiah is the king. And then the next chapter, Gedaliah is the governor. And then the next chapter, it's Jehoiakim. And he said, and it's all a mess. He said, I, I cannot plot this thing chronologically. And my answer to him was, yes. Right? Like, you know, I'm so, so, you know good, good luck. I mean, this, the point is you're bringing that, that kind of sensibility to bear. It can be a challenge. So when you think about the way in which the prophetic books of the Bible are structured canonically, now this, this is a bit of a challenge to the ways in which we think about these things because of the Bibles that we carry around. But the, we, in other words, our Bibles are um, law, uh, history books, so Genesis to Deuteronomy. Then we get Joshua all the way to Chronicles, Ezra, and Nehemiah. This is in our Bibles. Now, so you have history books. And then you get to the poetry and wisdom books of Job and Psalms and Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, Song of Solomon. And then the way in which the Old Testament ends from our English ordering is what? Isaiah to Malachi. Uh, so we're used to that structure of the Old Testament, that according to its four parts. Um, the, the, the Hebrew Bible, and I have a certain kind of predilection toward this ordering. Um, the Hebrew Bible comes to us in a little bit of a different way. You still have that Genesis to Deuteronomy portion called the Law, but then you move into the prophets and you're dealing with Joshua all the way to Malachi right in the middle of the Bible. And the Bible ends with these books called the writings that typically start with Psalms and end with the book of Chronicles. It's interesting. So you have this, this, this third part of the, of the Hebrew Bible that's thinking through what life looks like on the ground. What are our hopes? What does it mean to be? What does it mean to worship? What does it mean to suffer, to experience loss, disorientation? These are, what does it mean to be a lover, right? These are all the kinds of questions that the writings raise in light of the stability of the law and the prophets that come before it. Um, so the Bible's beginning to sort of think of itself in these ways. And when we come back to that middle section, the prophets, we have Joshua, we have Judges, we have Kings, we have Samuel. And then we have Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and the Twelve. Uh, the, we call them often the Minor Prophets. And the Minor Prophets, in all of their orderings, the way in which they're shaped in the history of the Old Testament, um, all of them begin with Hosea the prophet. He comes first. And this is worth thinking about, I think. Hosea's signal position, to my mind, and again, not everyone's persuaded by this, but unfortunately you just got me this morning. Um, but to my mind, Hosea would be on analogy to the book of Romans with the Pauline collection in the New Testament. Um, Romans is not the first letter that Paul wrote. We're not, again, we can't think of these things chronologically in terms of the logic of their order. Most, most Bible people think that Thessalonians was probably the first letter that Paul actually wrote in time, or the one that we have that's his earliest letter. But you know how it's ordered in the New Testament, right? Romans, um, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, you know, so you, you know how that's ordered. Thessalonians is somewhere down the way. Um, you've got Romans at the beginning, and for my money, I think Romans' signal position, its first place in the whole of that Pauline collection, functions as an interpretive lens for the whole um, of the Pauline collection. So that when I, let, let me put it on the ground this way, when I get to interpretive challenges with Paul, 
and there are a lot of them. Don't you remember what Peter said in, in the epistles of Peter? Have you read it? This is the Genelette paraphrase. Have you read any of those letters by Paul? They're hard, right? That's what Peter said. So there are challenges along the way. Um, and when we have to adjudicate or think through those challenges, my own understanding is we need the book of Romans to help us sort through that. Romans functions in a way as a kind of guide for navigating the complex terrain of the Pauline collection. I think Hosea functions that way as well in the Minor Prophets. It's, it's the first book in the Twelve. And it's providing for us a kind of entry point to the rest of those Twelve Minor Prophets, Hosea, Joel, Amos, all the way to Malachi at the end. And again, if one thinks of these terms historically, Amos is probably older than Hosea. So that if, if this is a horrible analogy, but if Hosea and Amos, who are both prophets of the northern kingdom of Israel, if they went to some sort of class reunion, right? Um, Hosea is going to the class reunion that's about 20 years earlier than, um, than I mean, or Amos is going to go 20 years earlier than, than, than uh, Hosea. He's older. And yet, even though Amos is an older prophet than, than Hosea is, Hosea comes first. And I want to tell you why I think Hosea comes first. Because Hosea is providing for you an understanding of the being and the character of God as patient and loving, even in his judgment, that whoever shaped these 12 prophets together wants you to carry that portrait of God all the way through the terrain of the rest of these books. And it's complicated. I mean, I tell people, my students all the time, if you want beach reading for the summer, leave Amos at home. Right? I mean, that, that is a hard book. Um, you flip from Jonah and go into Nahum and see the way, uh, Micah and then into Nahum, see the ways in which God talks about the Ninevites and Nahum. I mean, it's, it's kind of, it's blood curdling kind of stuff. So here you have Hosea on the front end giving you a portrait and a portrayal of the character and the being of God that the, I think whoever ordered this, the editor of the Minor Prophets, wants you to take that portrait through the rest of this very complicated and torturous journey through the Minor Prophets to the end of Malachi. And, and here's, I'll, I'll, I don't know if you'll find this persuasive, but this is another thought. This is how the whole book of Hosea ends. Ready for the last verse of, of Hosea? Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. This is Hosea chapter 14, verse 9. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. Now, just stop for a second. The, con the concept and the idea of knowledge in the book of Hosea is central. The people are perishing in the book of Hosea under the judgment of God because they lack the proper knowledge of God. They do not know who I am. They, they suffer for lack of knowledge. So this whole language in Hosea about knowing, we'll see it when we get back to Hosea 1-3 to this morning, very important. So here you have at the end of this book, the, the, the author is letting you know, hey, this is what you need to take away after going through these 12 chapters or these 14 chapters of Hosea. Let the wise person and the discerning person understand and know what? Who God is. It's crucial. So this whole sort of series that we're doing, prophetic portraits of God, that's what Hosea wants you to take away from his book. 
Who is God? What is his being? What is his character? How does he operate in accord with his mercy and his patience? So listen to how he goes on. Let him know them. For the ways of the Lord are right, and the upright walk in them, but transgressors will stumble over them. The ways of the Lord are right, the upright will walk in them, transgressors will stumble in them. So what's the prophet saying here? The prophet is saying here at the end of Hosea, this is the portrait of God that you're meant to take in your reading encounter and your lived encounter with the God of Israel. Discern it. Understand it. It's a call to wisdom here. It's interesting, I think, because again, we tend to think, at least scholars have tended to think in very structured categories of, of Old Testament genres. So, for example, you have law. And then you have this sort of prophecy slash apocalyptic kind of literature. And then you have this wisdom literature over here like Proverbs. Um, and what's the, what's the wisdom literature of the Old Testament? Well, it's, it's, it's human ingen- and by the way, I don't mean this in a diminutive way. It's human ingenuity at its best. What does it mean to live well? And what's the best of human conceptions that we can use to live life well? in the whole of one's existence. And that's the big question of the wisdom literature. How is life lived well? It comes as a bit of a shocker to students who come into an undergraduate class or a seminary class and they take some course on the prophets and then they're going to have some professor, I mean, on, on the Proverbs, and they're going to have some professor pull up for them some other Proverbs from this Egyptian wise scholar named Amina Mope. That's a great name, right? Amina Mope. And all of a sudden, you're reading these proverbs from the Egyptian wise men, Aminamope, and all of a sudden, you're like, huh, that looks familiar. And then you read another, you're like, boy, that looks real familiar too. And then another, you're like, oh my goodness, I'm seeing a pattern here. Uh, uh, So many of Aminamope's proverbs show up in the book of Proverbs in our Bible. And this is the part where a lot of our students will go, ah, right? Because they'll find out what? Aminamope is about a thousand years older than Solomon, right? So Solomon's reading a minimope and bringing some of that to bear. But how does Proverbs 1-7 begin? The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. See, this is crucial. Because wisdom in the Old Testament perspective is not merely the best of the human ingenuitive or, or intellectual tradition or practical wisdom that's worked out according to our own schema. By the way, the Bible, you see this with Solomon, the Bible will borrow capital from anywhere. Minimope, have at it. Um, Some other sort of wise person, have at it. Read away. But all of that is going to be received and filtered through the conception of the fear of the Lord, of the fear of Israel's God being primary to what it means to live a wise life. Because a wise life lived apart from the fear of the Lord is not wisdom according to a biblical construal. And that's very interesting to my mind to see the way in which Hosea the prophet here at the end of his prophecy is letting you know wisdom and the proper conception of who God is, rightly ordered knowledge according to the being and the character of God revealed is that which shapes our understanding of what wisdom, the arc of a life actually looks like at its best and in the real. So that's the question that Hosea is putting before you. Who is God? What is his character? 
How do we discern his ways? And the knowledge of God is the beginning of what real wisdom looks like. Life lived well. I have to say this as an, I wasn't planning on talking about this, but, but here we are. I have to say this. I think it's, to my mind, it's one of the reasons I love the Old Testament. The fact that the Old Testament will not allow us to think in such abstract ways, in such detached ways, that it doesn't intersect with the reality of what it means for us to live in the very practical features of our lives. I mean, I think, again, we all know, we heard it today from Cameron in the pulpit. I mean, we're, we're having to lead lives of repentance. We know this. I mean, I, I so badly wish, I so badly wish, I know you do too, that we could just sort of set something on autopilot, right? And, and just get the plane to a certain altitude and set it on autopilot and our spiritual life will just kind of go on as it's meant to go on. And we've all lived life long enough to know now that's just not the case. It's a constant recalibration. It's a constant return to the cross of Jesus. It's a constant return to the principles that God has revealed in the Scriptures that order the way in which we view our very existence. We, we, we have to always tend the garden. We have to. Amen. Um, so, with that said, I'm turning here back to uh, the beginning of Hosea. Right, so Hosea is giving us this portrait or this this challenge of what it means to live a life that's wise and that wisdom is wrapped up in the knowledge of God. And now we come to the beginning of the book of Hosea and we're going to see that God, and this is so fascinating, uses a metaphor to help us understand the character of his relationship with his people. Now we've got to stop here, and I'm conscious because we've got an English professor in our class this morning. Um, but I want to talk just a little bit about metaphor and their power. Um, because the Bible uses metaphors all over the place. So, so think about what, what's a basic definition of a metaphor. You know, you think about your kids coming home from the sixth grade English or seventh grade English and a simile uses like or as or a metaphors don't do that. But what's, what's a metaphor? A, met, a comparison. Between things that aren't similar for the sake of understanding. Um, so, for example, God is a rock. Well, we all know that God and a rock are different things. But they're being compared analogically in some way to help us gain knowledge. Now, this might be of interest to you, but the use of metaphors in the history of the Christian interpretive tradition and theology is problematic. Um, so, for example, if you were to go to Thomas Aquinas's Summa Theologicae, if you're reading the, I mean, he's just, you know, it's, that's not beach reading either, by the way. Um, but if you're reading in Thomas, Thomas in the first part of the Summa has a whole article given to the question of whether or not it's legitimate that God uses metaphors in the Bible. And, and you're thinking, well, we're in our moment in time, we recognize we use metaphoric thinking for everything. What's the big deal? Well, the big deal is Aquinas is working within a particular tradition, rhetorical tradition. Think people like Cicero and Quintilian, who thought that metaphors in public speech, especially persuasive speech, they cluttered things up. They did not help. In fact, if you want to be a good and persuasive communicator, dump all the metaphor stuff and get right at it. Lucidity and clarity and brevity. 
Keep it brief, keep it clear, keep it targeted. And when you start bringing in, I'll use a metaphor here. When you start bringing in uh, the whipped cream and the cherry of your rhetorical prowess into that moment, all of a sudden people might go, that is so fascinating. Oh, that's uh, what a great story. What a great analogy there. And they've forgotten what you're talking about. Right? So Cicero and Quintilian, they're like, you get at it. Um, so here, you, and that, and that, by the way, had a long history of reception in in the Christian church, especially in the West. So we've got, but but with Houston, we've got a problem. What's the problem? Bible uses metaphor all over the place. Can't help it. In, in fact, you can't get out of Psalm one, Psalm two. I mean, you just can't get out of anything in the Old Testament without metaphors being deployed. Now we have the good fortune of being in our moment in time. Because in our moment in time, there has been a renaissance in the study of metaphors that goes back probably 30 years now to figures like Paul Recur and others who have let us know, Lakoff and Johnson, Metaphors We Live By is another textbook that you'll see in undergraduate courses here or there. Um, and, and what's happened here? Well, you have a very different understanding and conception of how metaphors actually function in our existence. Someone like Aristotle would say that a metaphor is just an ornamental style of language. Again, it's a chariot, some whipped cream. But now here we are um, over the past 30 years, and these rhetoricians and these, these philosophers of language are saying, no, no, metaphors are not merely ornamental language. Metaphors are the very means by which we come to understand reality itself. We can't gain sense of the world without thinking of the world in relation to itself and thinking about how our experience and our experience of one thing in light of another thing aids, number one, our understanding, and number two, our understanding of the thing itself. We need metaphor. And by the way, that'd be a fun thing for you as you're sort of driving along this week to think about. Think about all the ways in which in just our normal discourse, we use things that are dissimilar to help us understand what it is we're, we're, we're doing. Um, so, back to Hosea. Jim? Some of all those, all those parables we have in life, aren't they? Just kind of extended metaphors themselves, a different way of presenting something. You mean the parables in Scripture? Oh yeah, Jesus is a big problem. And by the way, it's one of the things that Aquinas addressed. I mean, this, Jesus is a problem for us on this because he's a master um, a communicator, but he, he uses parabolic and analogical slash metaphorical language. I mean, it's almost like you can't talk without doing it. I'm the light of the world. Um, that's, I'm the bread of heaven. That's right. Yeah. So we're not surprised then to come to Hosea and to see that God is using a metaphor um, to help us understand his relating to his people. And he chooses one that touches a raw nerve. In other words, it's one where um, our, the tooth is sore. And if you touch and if you press on it too hard, frankly, in any culture, um, the nature of the husband-wife relationship and when the husband-wife relationship breaks down, when it's not working anymore, um, when it's broken, and fissured. That's what God uses here to to demonstrate to His people the character of His relationship with Him. And this is where we come into Hosea chapter 1, and we see God telling the prophet Hosea, um, I'm calling you to be a prophet, number one. Number two, you will bring prophetic words, but you're actually going to be involved in this grand prophetic symbolic action that you're going to take into your own body and existence. That is a heavy burden. There's a reason why 
most of the prophets in the Old Testament aren't excited about the gig. You know, it's like, it's, it's like, I mean, who, who, who's there just, can you think of anyone who's there just saying, I would love to do that? Um, Isaiah the prophet's like, I'm out. Jeremiah the prophet, please no. Somebody else, I'm too young. Here you have Hosea coming onto the scene who's being called into this really heavy existence of, think about this, bearing the word of the Lord and what he has to say, but also bearing the word of the Lord on his body in his very existence. But this is part of the challenge and where I think we as readers of the Bible have to be sensitive to what's presented to us in the material. Because Hosea chapter 1 to 3 is the stuff of, I mean, Christian fiction, right? I think there's some... Who's that gal that wrote that book on um, kind of a Hosea Gomer? Francine Rivers? <laughs> Man, well, you read that, didn't you? Come on, come clean. Um, I think like in the, the, like the last chapter. Anyway, I, I have... I still have a haunting memory of the last page of that. Uh, anyway, um, so, I mean, this is the stuff of Christian. Why? Because the material is so emotionally charged. And yet, if you read Hosea 1, 2, and 3 and try to work through it, it's actually almost unsettling how unemotional it is. In other words, I think our instinct, especially think we live in a post-Freudian world, we, t- we think in terms, for good or for ill, of sexuality and sexual identity. I mean, th- this is, we, we are mo- moderns way more than we know in the sort of pro- post-Freudian identity theory that we're working with. Um, and yet, here when we come to Hosea, Hosea's own psychoanalytical state um, is not front and central to the material. And I think the reason why Hosea's psychoanalytical state is not front and central to the material is that the prophet does not want you to lose the forest for the trees. The symbolic character of what Hosea is doing and embodying is meant to be kept front and central from beginning to end. Remember what this is about. At the end of the day, this is not about Hosea and Gomer. At the end of the day, this is about God and His people. And that particular portrait is placed, placed before us in a way, in a way that's heavy. And, and with that said, I, I kind of want to have my cake and eat it too here. With that said, and I think that's, that's an important reading strategy for Hosea. At the same time, how can anyone read Hosea 1 to 3 and not feel the emotional weight of it? So God comes to, you can see this here in Hosea chapter 1 verse 2. God comes to Hosea and he says, go, uh, take to yourself a wife uh, this is verse uh, three, uh, uh, two uh, of of whoredom, <laughs> and have children of whoredom. I mean, I, th- these are these are terms that I think are still uh, carried on from the King James Version tradition. That's ca- kind of made their way through. Who uses the term whore and whoredom today? Um, not very much. My wife and I have been listening audio book um, to Tara Westover's fascinating memoir called Educated. Have any of you, have anybody read this? Absolutely fascinating. Kind of stunning, actually. Um, that she grew up in a, in a, in a sort of a complete right-wing, crazy, off-the-grid Mormon family in Idaho, and her brothers called her whore all the time. I mean, there's that kind of setting. So hear, hearing that term, you're like, ah! You know, it, it just seems so... But it's got a punch to it. you got to take that to account. 
And yet, I'm not sure how to read this best. The, the Hebrew term up here, and I'll give you this, is um, just so you get your money's worth. It's Z-N-H in Hebrew. Uh, Zanah. Which I don't think necessitates as a reading that Zanah means a prostitute in the ways in which we think conventionally of prostitution. You know, a woman that goes, you know, goes into business and actually there's an exchange of commodity um, for her services. I think that we, we think of it as that, the oldest profession in the world, that, in that way. That's possible. But it's not, nece- it's not necessary. Um, because this is, I think, maybe the best way to understand Zanah. It indicates unregulated sexual behavior outside of marriage, and it can be translated as just fornication, I shouldn't say just, fornication or, or idolatry, or, or adultery. So, here's the question. Does Hosea marry a woman um, in a sort of proper marriage when we think of sort of the ancient Israelite world in that way, and then in time she becomes unfaithful? Um, or does he marry somebody who's unfaithful out of the gate? It's a detail that the text doesn't make clear, and again, because the prophet's not interested in giving you material for a novel. I think that's the point. The prophet wants to keep the symbolic action in front of you. The point is, the wife is unfaithful. At some point in time, becomes unfaithful and acts in adultery. And I think, and again, this is my own reading on this, I think there's a, there's a clue in Hosea chapter 1 to let you know that he probably had a normal marriage on the front end and then things went off the rails. And I'll, I'll, I'll read this to you. So uh, here you have uh, verse 3. Uh, go take to yourself a wife of whoredom. So, so he, he went and he took Gomer, the daughter of Debliam, and she conceived, and, and, and notice this language here, and she bore him a son. You see that? So this was Hosea's offspring. And they called the name of the first child, remember this is all symbolic action, she called the name of the firstborn son Jezreel. Um, and Jezreel is a place name of the northern kingdom. So Hosea is a prophet to the north. He's a prophet to Israel. And Jezreel is the place where in a coup d'etat, um, Jehu murdered the royal dynasty that was on the throne at the time, the Amride dynasty, murdered the last king and took the throne for himself. And here you have God saying that that was an act of some sort of covenantal unfaithfulness before him. And he's naming the first child Jezreel as an indication for one of the reasons that God is going to bring judgment on the northern kingdom. Don't forget what Jehu did at Jezreel, right? Um, So she bore him a son and she named him Jezreel. But look at verse 6. And again, this is soft, so I can't be overly, overly um, determinative in the reading here, but look at verse 6. She conceived again and bore a daughter. Now that to me is rather conspicuous in the way in which the narrative is presenting this. See back in verse 3, she bore him a son. Verse 6, she conceived again and now she just bore a daughter. And uh, so I, 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 there's no, I'm, I'm reading into the gaps here, all right, admittedly, but it seems to me that the first child is indicated as being born to Hosea, the prophet, her husband, and the second and the third child 
um, are, are, are no longer being born to him per se, but are now probably the product of her zana, her adultery. And what are the names of these children? Oh, they're kind of rough, right? Um, I don't think they, you know that book list that comes out like top names of the year. These aren't these aren't in there. So what what's the name of the of the daughter? Call her name. Uh, and I like this that my my ESV translates it no mercy. Loruchama is the name, uh, which is a lot to get out for dinner time. But Loruchama, um, no mercy. Now that's that's a heavy call here when you think about the nature of what it means to say that now. God is no longer showing mercy to his people. Because the name of the second child and the name of the third child are related to one another. The name of the third child is Lo-Ami, not my people. So, do you see how all, all of these circles within the narrative begin to move, but overlap with one another in such a way that let us know what's going on in this big symbolic action of the prophet? He's taken a wife who's moved into unfaithfulness. And now God's saying, that's an indication of what's happened between me and my bride, Israel. And the children that I have are being named as, again, symbolic names that are indicating, number one, the causes of the problem, and number two, the effects of those causes. Namely, no longer any mercy, no longer my people. And this is the complete breakdown of the relationship between God and His people in the covenant relation. What's the covenant relation? I mean, it's like Deuteronomy class 101. What's the nature of the covenant relationship between God and His people? I will be your God, and you will be my people. Ami is the Hebrew term there, my people. And now we also recognize in light of the book of Deuteronomy and the long and complicated history of Israel, that the inverse of the covenant formula is true as well. If I will not be your God, then you will not be my people. And they've fallen after other gods, they've fallen after other lovers, as Gomer did, and the whole covenantal relationship has now, has now broken down. Okay, I'm going to stop there, um, and we'll do the happy part next. All right. Um, and what's the happy part, so that, I, so that we don't bury the lead? What's the happy part? The happy part is the rejection of the marital relation by the spouse, all right, um, cannot determine the long view of God's mercy toward his people. His judgment's real. But, and, and this is what's so beautiful about Hosea being at the beginning of the, of the prophets, of the minor prophets that are hard pills to swallow. It's as if Hosea the prophet wants you to know when it comes to his people, God can't help himself. He just can't. He's, he's, he's given himself in complete love and it's not based solely on the merit and the worth of the, of the, of the object of his affection. It's based on his own internal determination to be this kind of God for his people. I'm determined to be this kind of God for you. I've set my affection on you. I cannot let my affection go because I cannot let myself go. Um, which is beautiful, the ways in which this here, this portrayal and conception of Israel's God overlaps so beautifully with what we heard today from Cameron. Hard, hard sermon to hear, right? But what we heard in there was what? The character of God and His redemption of His people is that God will go to the nth degree over melodramatic ways 
to show His love for His people in the life and the death of His own Son by bringing harm upon His own person. God will go that far to make sure that the relationship with His people is maintained all the way through eternity. And what does He ask in return? Faith in Him. A, a, a turn of belief that that's true and that that's true for me that results in lives that care for Him, that love Him, and, and love our neighbors. So Lord, thank You for Hosea. What a... What a um, what a palpable book that just seems to sort of pulse as we engage it. And yet here we are this morning thinking through it together. And I pray that you'll let this metaphor from Hosea um, encourage us to know that you've set your marital affection on your people. And you will not let us go. Help us to cling, Lord, to that promise. And, uh, and let it sustain us, Lord, in hope, I pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you will join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.